I think there are lots of different ways of exploring faith and its role in uh, the community. When James writes his letter, chapter 2 has become a very controversial chapter. Martin Luther uh, said that the book of James shouldn't be in the Bible. He described him as the, the apostle or the epistle of straw. He said it's um, all this faith and works business, it's just too difficult. Um, because when he read James chapter 2, he read what he saw as a contradiction. Because James says in James chapter 2 verse 14, uh, faith without works is dead. Whereas the Apostle Paul said in his letter to the church in Ephesus, which is modern day Turkey, it is by grace that you are saved through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So who's right? I guess you don't have these struggles with scripture. Um, Is it one or is it the other? Or could it possibly be both? I think it is both. Because the first thing that uh, James is saying, really, about faith and its role in the community is, and you can read the chapter yourself when you uh, get home this afternoon, is if you say you have faith, and somebody outside is hungry, your faith isn't going to change them. It's not going to help them. It's not going to feed them. It's not going to make a difference in their lives unless you do something with it. Within a stone's throw distance of this church, there are lives falling apart. And you could be the answer to your own prayer. You say, Lord, transform the community. Transform the people around me. Transform my neighbours. Change my family. Change this nation. Change this village or change this town. Often God says, I've already given you the power to do that. Do something with what I've done in you. Faith in community looks like something because faith always looks like something. Love always looks like something. And it doesn't look like locking ourselves away. And you know this. It doesn't look like locking ourselves away in the confines of the fortress of our churches and occasionally on a Sunday putting down the drawbridge, running out, grabbing a couple of people, running back in and pulling up the drawbridge and saying that'll do us for another week. And yet for many churches, that's what faith does look like. Your cafe is a, a visible expression of the fact that you don't believe that. You know that faith must look like something. It must involve itself in the community. But at the same time, and that's one aspect of faith in community. I want to go beyond James or add to what James says. What about faith in this community? How are you doing You've been through some rough times over the last few months. Some really hard stuff. Do you still have faith in each other? Do you still have this sense that God hasn't left you, that he hasn't abandoned you, that he's not going to go somewhere else? And that despite all of the disappointments and all of the regrets and all of the stuff that's been going on, God is still here. And that somehow you need each other. Somehow in the midst of this little church community, God is still at work. He hasn't given up on you. He's not walked out and slammed the door. He hasn't said, five head Baptist, who? But that he knows every one of you. He knows every hair on every one of your heads. I think that is true. I don't think that's true. I know that it's true. And that leads me to the third 
observation, the one that I want to focus on most. A faith that locks itself away is no good to anybody. A faith that believes in one another and forgets about the world outside is no good to anybody. But a a community of faith that seeks to bring people into something that was right for them 20 years ago or 30 years ago is also no good for anybody. Faith in community and faith in your community has to mean all of those things. It has to mean a faith that looks like something, a love that does something, that gets involved, that gets engaged, that makes a difference. It also has to mean somehow this conviction that God is still at work in the midst of Five Head Baptist Church. And it also has to mean an openness to what God wants for you for the next chapter of your journey, not just what you would prefer. And that's hard. If you have a Bible, could you turn with me to uh, the Gospel of Luke? I'd like to just read a few verses from it and then pick up the readings that we heard just now. Luke chapter 5. Jesus has announced what he's here to do in Luke chapter 4. He read, wasn't that one of those sermons or one of those moments in the New Testament that you'd love to have been present? Jesus arrives in the synagogue in Luke chapter 4 and it's his turn to give the reading. He walks forward and they hand him a scroll. Um, Somebody else would have held it for him. They open it out would have come out of a very posh cover. And he reads from Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, um, to proclaim freedom for the captives, the year of the Lord's favor. And then he says, The scroll is rolled up. (laughs) And he looks around the synagogue and he says, Today, in your hearing... This scripture has been fulfilled. And the Bible says, and the eyes of everybody were upon him. I wonder why. He's just announced this glorious thing. And everybody in the synagogue is, how can he say that? That's just, that's Jesus, Joseph's son. So by the time you get to chapter five, the Pharisees are out to get him. They're not happy with him. He's a revolutionary. He's upsetting the apple cart. He's saying things that they don't like. He's making them uncomfortable. And they want to pull him down in whatever way they can. So in verse 33 we read, Then they, that's the Pharisees, said to him, John's disciples, like the disciples of the Pharisees, frequently fast and pray, but your disciples eat and drink. Jesus said to them, You cannot make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? The days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and sews it on an old garment. Otherwise, the new one will be torn, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new wine, but says the old is good. 
One Sabbath, while Jesus was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked some grains, some heads of grain, rubbed them in their hands and ate them. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered, have you not read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and gave some to his companions. And then he said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And then it goes on to tell the story of him healing a, a man with a withered hand in front of the Pharisees who were out to get him. The context of this is really important. Luke is describing opposition that Jesus faces because he's saying something different. He's been challenging the religious leaders of Judaism, not by directly arguing with them, but simply by being who he is. And the religious authorities of the day don't like it because he is undoing some of their control and their legalism and he's presenting them with a different way of living because at the heart of the gospel Jesus always challenges us not to engage simply with tradition for tradition's sake or form for the sake of form he challenges us to live in relationship with him and that looks different depending on whatever context we find ourselves in or community that we belong to. The argument that they bring to him in verse 33 is, why aren't your disciples fasting like the Pharisees? They say to him, you're not really authentic because you're not as religious as us. You're not doing the right things and your disciples aren't doing the right things. And Jesus responds to them by using three images. The first image in verse 36 is the image of a new piece of cloth being sewn onto an old garment. The second image is of, a, of new wine being put into old wineskins. And the third image is about old wine being better than new wine, which is a bit odd because it kind of seems to contradict the first two images. So in broad terms, in the first image, Jesus says, you don't take a new piece of cloth and sew it onto an old garment. Because if you do, when it's washed, the new cloth will shrink and it will pull at the edges of the patch and the old garment will be destroyed and the new cloth will be destroyed. He seems to be saying, the old and the new don't go together. The second image is exactly the same, but with a different kind of picture. He says, you don't take wine, brand new, bubbly, good. I don't know how strict you are as Baptists. I quite enjoy a glass of wine. Maybe you don't. Um, you, don't uh, you don't take good wine and put it into an old, brittle, hard wineskin. Because if you do, it will burst. We'll get to what that picture looks like in a minute. Same thing again. Seems to be saying, the old and the new don't mix. You can't patch one onto the other. And the third thing he says seems to reverse that because he says old wine is always better than new wine. So up until verse 39, you're kind of with him. But in verse 39, you think, have you not just reversed what you're saying here? Well, that depends because if we look at it closely, he's saying something which is really very important. I think he's saying in the new wine, in the new cloth on old cloth thing, inherently you can't mix the ways of Jesus with the old ways of doing things. Legalism and grace do not go together. Stepping into Christ 
means stepping out of old traditions and ways. And there's no two ways about that. Now, we live as Christians in a new covenant. That's what I want to get to in a minute. What Jesus was, was challenging here was not religion per se. It was the Jewish understanding. It was particularly the Pharisees. Pharisees, just a posh name for people who were quite legalistic. But they were legalistic because they wanted to be true. They actually didn't set out to be legalistic. They set out because of a reverence for God because of a reverence for his word, because of a desire not to offend him, God, they, they started to add rules and regulations to the old covenant. So by the time Jesus comes along, for example, which is why chapter 6 is so interesting, there are 39 additional rules for not breaking the Sabbath. If you, and I'm sure you know some of these, a chicken could lay an egg in the Sabbath, but you couldn't pick it up. If you did, you were breaking the Sabbath. You could spit on the ground, but if you touched it, you were making a brick and therefore breaking the Sabbath. Which is why Jesus, when he healed a man who was born blind on the Sabbath, spat on the ground and picked it up and rubbed it in his hand and put it on the man's face. Because he was saying to the Pharisees, you're wrong. You could help somebody who was on the brink of death, but you couldn't help somebody who wasn't, which is why in Luke chapter 6, which I read just now, he says to the man with the withered hand, on the Sabbath, stretch out your hand. And if you read the passage carefully, he looks at the Pharisees, and uh, the passage just follows the grain passage that we read in Luke 6. And it's as if he says, to, it's, the Bible says, looking at the Pharisees, he said to the man with the withered hand, stretch out your hand. And it's as if he says, do you want a confrontation? about who's right and who's wrong. Stretch out your hand. Not that you're a Pharisee, sir, so don't feel as if I'm staring at you. <laughs> he was saying something. And in this passage, the cloth thing, he's saying to those that have bound God up and made him inaccessible to other people, he was saying, You've, you, you have got to let him go. You've got to stop thinking that all of your rules and your regulations and your customs and your traditions and the way you do things are more important than who I am. The church needs to hear that. Not particularly Five Head Baptist Church. The church. I, don't, I cannot tell you how many times I, I help churches around the UK and around the world to get involved with their communities as well as leading a local church. And I can't tell you how many times I've had conversations with people and the idea of changing something, the idea of trying something new, the idea of a different format of service, it would be easier to change the doctrine of the church. Because deeply in their hearts, folks say, we've always done it this way. That's what Jesus is challenging here. He's saying, just because you've always done it that way doesn't mean that that's the only way to do it. He says, you can't take a new piece of cloth and sew it on to an old garment. If you do, you're going to destroy both. I am sure that there are many wonderful traditions in this church. I don't know very much about you, actually. But none of those traditions, none of those traditions are more important than the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The time you meet, how you gather, the music that you sing, the way you split up, 
The fact that your seats are this way round. I bet they weren't originally. Somebody somewhere said, let's take the pews out. Do any of you remember that argument? And then somebody probably said, why don't we try turning the chairs round? Do you remember that argument? Hmm. Somebody probably said, well, shall we put an organ in? And then somebody said, shall we take the organ out? And then somebody said, shall we have drums? Oh, no, the devil's music, we don't have drums. Shall we move to hymn books? Shall we move to an OHP? Shall we move to a video projector? And you can remember all of those conversations. And at each stage, because we all do it, I'm not criticizing you, I do the same thing. We resist change because we'd rather stay with what we know than step into what we don't know. And yet the only thing that we can do, if we are going to be relevant, not just to the people in this room, but to the world that we live in, is be relevant. We've got to work out how to connect with them, how to engage with them. And I know that some of you would say, the first thing you'll say to Andy after I finish is, never invite him back. (laughs) But you are not the most important thing in this church. Your preferences, your desires, your customs, your traditions, your sacred cows are not at the top of God's agenda. What he wants you to do is to put the people beyond these walls at the top of your agenda and do whatever you need to do whilst remaining faithful to Jesus to engage with them. That's what the first illustration means. Well, we'll have a bit of both. Good luck with that because they'll tear at each other. They'll pull at each other. I lead a Baptist church, but don't tell them I'm not a Baptist. They do know. But I know this about the church that I lead. We have many, many, many things that we get wrong, many things that we make mistakes in. And if people want to confess their weaknesses, I'm at the top of the queue But I know that in their hearts, and I think you're the same, you know, what they want to do is reach out to the people around them. They want to connect with the people who are not in church. They want to connect with the people who are not in the kingdom yet. And they're willing to go through the painful process of change in order to do that. And I'm sure you're the same. The second image that he uses is the image of a wineskin, where he says, if you put new wine into an old wineskin, it will burst. He's saying the same thing, but in a slightly different way. We have this image of wineskins, like a little pouch, like a little water bottle that they use in the cowboy movies or something, a little tiny thing. That's not at all what this means. In Matthew's account of the same story, in Mark's, um, they use a slightly different language. But a wineskin, as described here, is basically the hide, the whole hide of a sheep or a goat that has been tanned and the legs are sewn up. All the the bits, the stuff can get out, is sewn up. And the neck becomes the bottle, the bottleneck. That's where the, anyway, it becomes the bottleneck. And they're huge enormous things in, in, the, in the winemaking process. They're enormous. And they would be, um, the wine would be pressed. Um, the Old Testament tells us lots of ways in which that was done, but trampled, be pressed. It would go through a sieve. Um, as it was pressed down, it would go into a big 
thing and then it would be put into a big jar and then it would be poured into these hides and stored. And if hides got too old, the minute you put the wine in to ferment, it creates gas bubbles away. I don't know if any of you have ever tried home brewing, but you know what it's like when it all goes wrong. Um, and it would ferment and bubble and ferment and bubble and ferment and bubble. And the, the hide has to be breathable. It has to be able to expand so that the gas doesn't make the thing explode. But if it's not breathable, if it's not adaptable, then the whole hide, not a little tiny bottle, but an enormous big dead animal, bursts. And there's an unholy mess. And Jesus says, if you're not breathable, that's what will happen to you. If you're not adaptable, that's what will happen to you. God will pour his spirit into you as a community. And we'll explain why that language of new wine links to that. And you will get bloated and bloated and bloated. And unless you are adaptable, you'll eventually burst. And this isn't the kind of burst where a little bit goes and you can stitch it up again. It's one, I don't know if you ever watch cartoons as a youngster, when there's a big kaboom and everything is a mess. Lack of adaptability makes that happen in Christian communities. Lack of willingness to change makes that happen. It makes a terrible mess and everybody gets hurt. So here Jesus is saying in two different ways, what you need is to be breathable and adaptable for me. But he uses this phrase about new wine and I want to pick that up for a moment or two. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, the idea of wine and rain are identified with the power and the purpose of the Holy Spirit. The phrases that Andy read to us from Deuteronomy chapter 11 and from Joel chapter 2 refer to that. And they refer to this promise from God that he will place new wine or latter rain on his people as they walk with him. In Joel chapter 2, there's this amazing promise that God would give that kind of rain, that kind of new wine to his people. That was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the church. And for 2,000 years, he's been being poured out every day ever since. He continually pours himself out on the church. He strengthens and equips you. You're sitting here today. If you are a Christian, then God the Holy Spirit is at work in your life. But my question to you is, how adaptable are you to that spirit? How open are you to him? How willing are you to let him mold you and shape you so that you can be not just as an individual, but as a community, the community that he wants you to be? How are you going to allow God to move in you? And there are a couple of things to note about it. Because this is about not just an outside experience, this is about how a church develops its spirituality. There are two ways of doing spirituality. There are many ways, but two main ways. Externally or internally. If you do spirituality externally, then you have a list of rules and regulations that you follow. That's what the Pharisees did. Jesus is saying to these men in this passage, this is about your heart. You might be great at arranging and organizing. It doesn't mean that you're right with God. You might never miss a meeting. It doesn't mean that your heart is right. 
You see, this isn't just about a community. This is about individuals as well. How adaptable are you? Do you feel a bit bulgy <laughs> over the last few months? Has everything got a bit tight? When you look at people, are you inherently or first negative? Or do you believe the best of them? When you come to church, do you look down your nose at what's going on around you and say, this isn't quite what I like? Or are you coming ready to engage the possibility that God is here? Willing to listen? Willing to be adapted and changed by him? That's a challenge for many people because what want is to be rigid. How are you in your spirituality? Is what you are driven by externals or by internals? And in a very real sense in this passage, Jesus is the bridge between all that was and all that is to come. It's him and him alone that creates this connection. Character, not ritual, is what makes us followers of Christ. Obedience to who he is, not a whole list of rules and regulations, is what is so important. Jesus was saying to these Pharisees, if you become resistant to change, if you become more obsessed with guarding the past than you do shaping the future, then you're on a sticky wicket. Please remember that. That's not to say, though, that Jesus threw out the old covenant and the old ways. And that's where we get to this last verse, which I think is so interesting and so challenging. When he says in verse 39, And no one after drinking old wine desires new wine, but says the old is good, it feels like he's contradicting himself. But actually he's not, because here's what happens in this passage. Here's what he's saying. In Jewish history and tradition, we have the Torah, which is the, um, the, old, the first five books of the Old Testament of the Pentateuch. But the Torah is sometimes translated as law. It much better is translated as worldview, the way of understanding God and your place in it and the, the customs and laws and boundaries. And it's everything pulled together, given to Moses, written down and recorded by the uh, Israelites. By the time of Jesus' earthly ministry, that had just begun to be formulated in a written tradition in a much stronger way. They were coming to the end of that period. But over the years, between the Old Testament era and the New Testament era, two groups of people predominantly had emerged. The Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees were, were legalistic. In an, in an attempt to get the law right, they kept defining it a bit more. So if we're, if we're going to break the Sabbath, then we better not do this, this, and this. Mm, let's define that a little more. Mm, let's define that a little more. And what they were trying to do was create obedience. But what they were doing was, was killing people with rules and regulations. In Matthew 23, Jesus describes it as if he's putting weights. They're putting weights on people's backs. And the Sadducees were very sad, you see. Have you ever heard that? Because they did not believe in any form of afterlife. There were two main Jewish groups. So over the 400 years between the end of the Old Testament era and the beginning of the era where Jesus' earthly ministry is recorded in the New Testament, hundreds of rules and regulations had been written. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees were now presenting these rules as the truth. They were saying, this is what it means to be a faithful follower of God. 
And Jesus in this passage challenges them and says, no, that's not what it means. Let's go back to what it really means. Let's jump back past 400 years of your traditions and your legalism and your expectations and your boundaries and let's look at what God really said because that's what the old wine is. The stuff that you're calling old wine is really rather new wine. So what I want to do is take you back to what God is really like. And that's why it's such a powerful story. Because he says, I am new wine, which is actually old wine. If you want to see what God is like, look at Jesus. If you want to see the way he treats people that are bound, look at Jesus. If you want to see how God deals with pressure and rejection and those that are vulnerable and isolated, don't look at the Pharisees and don't look at the Sadducees and don't look at all the laws that they wrote. Look at Jesus and see in him someone who embodies all that God is. And actually, in a very real sense, whether the traditions that we have are charismatic, and there are just as many traditions there, or Pentecostal, or Baptist, or Anglican, or Catholic, you name the tradition. There are lots of them. And whatever the tradition might be, the tradition is not as important as the gospel. The way we do it isn't the most important thing. God is the most important thing. Does that make sense? So all of us, including me, how long does it take to form a tradition? About two meetings, I think. We did something and we liked it. We do it again. It's quite good. Then we do it for the next 20 years. But they're just traditions. And in this passage, what Jesus is saying is, your traditions themselves are in and of themselves not going to lead people to me. They're not going to bring life. The wine of who I am will bring life. The truth of who God is will bring life. And that alone. I've loved leading the church that I'm leading now. And I've been reading quite a lot for about five or six years now about Baptist ministry and Baptist theology. I love it. I'm more Baptistic than the church that I lead. Because Baptists make decisions together. Way! Oh, all right then. That's fantastic. I love that. Very biblical. Baptists were also originally called, one of the the distinctives of the Baptist tradition was that they were dissident political voices. (laughs) I think that's fantastic. They refused simply to be a reflection of society. They refused to be the government with a small g. They weren't part of the establishment. They didn't want to belong They didn't feel a need to fit in. They didn't chase respectability. They weren't after people's approval. They passionately believed that God called people into salvation and that they professed that through baptism in water by immersion and that the community was a place where the Spirit dwelt and that when they came together, God could do whatever he wanted, however he wanted, whenever he wanted, with whomever he wanted. I think that's quite good. But you couldn't always tell, could you, if you were to go into many churches now. Because we have become so respectable. We have become so formal. We have become people who, who know how to do things rather than people who are hungry and dependent and yearning for the Spirit of God to rest upon us, both individually and collectively. One last thought. Back to this new wine thing. Or latter rain. The co- promises that Andy read from 
Genesis and from, from Deuteronomy and from Joel are not promises that are yet to happen. They're promises that are already fulfilled for you if you will walk in them. God's Spirit is here. God's Spirit does live in you. God's Spirit has been given. New wine is a symbol of the Spirit's presence in our lives. And that new wine washes away the pain of regret and mistakes. That new wine gives you the ability to forgive. That new wine gives you the opportunity to see the world differently. The other way in which the Bible describes the Spirit, there are many, but another main way is describing him as rain. And in both the Deuteronomy passage and the Joel passage that Andy read, there's a reference to something called the former rain and the latter rain, which is a very Jewish thing. The former rain normally is the rain that fell around about December, somewhere around that time, uh, November, December. And the seasons in the, in the Middle East are different to the seasons that we have here. The former rain softened hard ground so that it could be plowed. It broke hardness. It softened up the ground. Then seeds were planted. And as the seeds were planted, they grew. And the latter rain made the, the plants ready for harvest. The seeds became, the plants became strong and vibrant and ready for harvesting. I wonder if it's true that for some of you today, the rain of the Spirit needs to soften hard ground. Hard because of disappointment? Maybe. Hard because of life? Maybe. Hard because stuff has gone wrong? Maybe. Or hard because you're working too hard? Hard because you're jaded? hard because you're worried. There are a thousand reasons for your ground being hard. But God can rain on it this morning if you let him. And he will gently turn the land. And that might mean you letting go of some regret. It might mean you letting go of grief. It might mean you letting go of forgiveness. It might mean you starting again. It might mean you're looking forward rather than back. But will you let the rain soften you this morning? And for some of you, what you might need is the latter rain. You're desperate to, to get involved. You're desperate to be a part of a church which is faith at work in the community. You're yearning for it. You're, you're on the edge of your seat saying, come on, church! Well, the great thing is the Holy Spirit can do both, can't he? He can soften those of us that need softened and he can release those of us that need released and he can give a fresh start that those, to those who need a fresh start and he can give confidence to those that don't feel confident and forgiveness to those that need it or need to offer it or need to receive it. He can do all of those things and we see all of that in the life and the ministry of Jesus. Very rarely, very rarely do I bring what I believe to be a prophetic word and those I, I, I think I bring prophetic words in preaching often I think that's the job of the preacher but very very rarely do I say I think this is a word for you specifically as a church but asking your leadership team to test it I believe this is a word for you and I want you to hear again from Joel chapter 2 what God is saying 
to the people of Israel fulfilled in the day of Pentecost. But is it possible that this is a promise for you too? Surely he has done great things. Be not afraid. Be glad and rejoice. Surely the Lord has done great things. Be not afraid. For the open pastures are becoming green. The trees are bearing their fruit. The fig tree and the vine yield their riches. Be glad, O people of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God. For he has given you the autumn rains in righteousness. He sends you abundant showers, both autumn and spring rains as before. The threshing floors will be filled with grain. The vats will overflow with new wine and oil. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. The great locust and the young locust, the other locust and the locust swarm, my great army that I sent amongst you. You will, be, you will have plenty to eat until you are full and you will praise the name of the Lord your God who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be ashamed. Then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and that there is no other. Never again will my people be ashamed. And it shall come to pass that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and my maid servants, I will pour out my Spirit in those days. I think God is declaring over you as a church a new day. And I know that you've been through a great deal of pain. But if you will let him, he will declare a new day over you also. A new day over your relationship with him. A new day over your engagement with this community. And you know, I have a sense that for some of you that will mean a new day in which you say, you know, I need to move on. I need to find a different church to be part of but I think God is declaring over you a new day a day of blessing and a day of engagement and a day of him moving in power please do not be the old cloth do not be the unmovable wineskin instead say Lord I want to be new cloth I want to be a malleable wineskin and that can be summed up in one simple phrase. Whatever God asks you, say yes.